Welcome to another episode of Chiefs of Station. My name is Efren Torres and I'm your host. And today I have the absolute pleasure to speak with Dr. David Robarge, Chief Historian of the Central Intelligence Agency. Dr. Robarge, thank you very much for being here today to discuss with me the history of the President's Daily Briefing or PDB. So let's get started. Uh, first, may I ask for an introduction of yourself for the audience? Yeah, certainly, uh, Efren. It's uh, great to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about uh, the PDB. It's a fascinating subject for me. I've been working for a number of years on an internal history of it and uh, looking forward to sharing some of those insights uh, with you and your audience. My own background uh, at the agency dates to 1989 when I joined up with a foot-in-the-door job, and then eventually, uh, because of the first Gulf War broke out, I was able to land an analytical position in the Counterterrorism Center, where I worked for three years and then migrated to uh, first the Leadership Analysis Division. I was a biographer by training at university, so that was a nice fit. Instead of dealing with dead people, I'm dealing with living people, but it's pretty much the same thing. And then uh, I moved into one of the regional offices and became a leadership analyst dealing with Middle East issues. By that time, I had finished the PhD and had reached the commensurate uh, general schedule grade level to get a job on the history staff. And when, when one opened up, I moved over. That was in 1996. And I served as a staff historian for nine years. And then the chief historian position opened up in 2005. And I was able to land that. And I've been in that position ever since. So I'm uh, over 30 years at the agency and a better part of a quarter century working on the history staff. Impressive. Thank you very much for the introduction. But the topic today, the President's Daily Brief, um, what can you tell me about it in general? What is it for, for members of the audience that are not familiar with it? But also, I'm very interested in knowing what came before the PDB was established. The PDB is the latest iteration of a for the president's daily intelligence product that has been produced for the White House since 1946 by CIA's predecessor, the Central Intelligence Group. That initial product was called the Daily Summary. And it came about because President Harry Truman was frustrated that he was getting lots of random reports from different departments in the government dealing with foreign affairs and intelligence issues. And nobody was putting it all together, summarizing it, uh, giving him a sense of what was more important and what was less important. In other words, what he really needed to know each day. And that was the genesis of the daily summary, which has been fully declassified. In fact, we have declassified all of the president's products up through the uh, Ford administration, and currently we're looking at doing the same with the Carter administration. Uh, the Daily Summary was a very primitive publication, if you want to call it that. It was run off on a mimeograph machine and contained very little analysis. It was essentially a classified headline service dealing with issues that had arisen in State Department reporting, some intelligence reporting. It contained no signals intelligence, the code word information, as it would be called. That was included uh, only several years later. President Truman was very pleased with it, and we continued to provide that until 1951. By the way, no briefings are occurring here. 
Now, that process, which we can talk about later, didn't get started until the mid-1970s. So for essentially 30 years, we are providing really a classified uh, news service to the president. In 1951, a new office called the Office of Current Intelligence was established as part of a reorganization of the agency. And this office decided on its own, it had not gotten any negative feedback from President Truman at all about the daily summary, decided to recast the publication as something called the Current Intelligence Bulletin or CIB. This was a bit more sophisticated than the daily summary. It was not only printed uh, using an offset process, so it looked neater and cleaner. It could also uh, include graphs and photographs, uh, visuals in other words. And it also now contained communications intelligence. So it was now an all source publication. Also by this time, the agency was providing brief comments on the reporting. Previously for several years, it had just simply reported what was out there. State Department, by the way, didn't even like the idea of the daily summary because it was so heavily reliant on state reporting. Uh, that department thought it should be producing that product, but the president wanted something that was non-departmental because he thought it would be more objective. So the current intelligence bulletin runs until 1958, when under President Eisenhower, it is recast as the Central Intelligence Bulletin. It is bigger and thicker and more newsy because it's going to over 50 people inside the intelligence community. Now, this creates a perpetual problem. The broader the readership, the less likely it is to contain sensitive information and therefore to be of less value in a sense to the policymakers. On the other hand, you want to market your product, show that it's important, show that people are reading it. So you expand the subscription list. And that trade-off has occurred throughout the history of the president's product. In some cases, the readership has been very, very small. And in other cases, it's been much larger. And it always tends to creep uh, bigger during any particular administration. Now, Eisenhower uh, gets the Central Intelligence Bulletin, as does his successor, John Kennedy. However, Kennedy does not like the bulletin. It's too big, too long, too wordy, doesn't have the kinds of information he needs, so he's not even reading it. Also, the agency had lost favor with Kennedy because of the Bay of Pigs fiasco. So the agency decides that it needs to connect with him and one way to do that, and this is a perennial theme in the history of the president's product, using it as a vehicle for communication and relationship building, it decides to scrap the uh, Central Intelligence Bulletin as the president's product. It continues to go to the intelligence community. And instead, people in that Office of Current Intelligence come up with something quite different. And this is based on feedback from a presidential advisor who said Kennedy wanted something short, snappy, and something he could carry around with him during the day, stick it in his jacket pocket and walk around with the top secret <laughs> president's product wherever he went. This was referred to as the President's Intelligence Checklist, or PICL, P-I-C-L, which is the reason why the early agency was referred to as the Pickle Factory, because we made pickles every day. Kennedy loved this. He gave great feedback. He would even call up the Office of Current Intelligence or even analysts if he found out who they were and comment directly on the pieces. Uh, the 
prose in it is very magazine-ish. It's punchy, it's colloquial. Uh, the pieces are very short, uh, two, three sentences at the max, and usually uh, not heavily commented on, if at all. Uh, Kennedy liked the pickle and, however, restricted it to a very small group of people. He just didn't want it uh, getting around. So initially, it's only he and the National Security Advisor who get copies of it. And the National Security Advisor is the one who he discusses the pickle with uh, every day, or uh, but very informally. We, we're not still talking about the formal presidential briefings that we're, uh, we, we have today. Kennedy uh, leaves office abruptly through assassination on the 22nd of November, 63. And now Lyndon Johnson starts getting the pickle. This is pretty astounding. Johnson was not on the readership list for the pickle. Only the Secretary of Defense and Secretary of State, in addition to the National Security Advisor and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, got it. That's the total circulation under Kennedy. It's astounding to think that the Vice President is not receiving the same information that the President gets. Instead, Johnson is getting the Central Intelligence Bulletin, which we have no indication he read. What we tried to do with Johnson was uh, connect because of this abrupt transition using the pickle and using some briefings, but he soon got tired of that. That was not the way he liked to get his intelligence. And we realized over time from feedback from advisors of his that he wasn't looking at it at all. And in part, it, he didn't like it because it was a Kennedy product and he was estranged from the, the Kennedy administration figures. So to maintain or to build a relationship with Johnson, we, established a brand new document, which is the President's Daily Brief, and it premieres on December 1, 1964. I'm sure we'll be talking later about its various iterations and such, but that is the genesis of uh, what we now know as the, as the PDB. Well, that's, that's fascinating. Um, but uh, from a historical perspective, uh, are there any case studies that highlight uh, the critical role of the PDB? It's hard to point out any particular scenarios in which something in the PDB, uh, whether it was accurate or not, had a pronounced difference on what was going on. We can think of the bin Laden one under the second Bush administration as one of the premier ones. But for the most part, the, the PDB and the president's products serve as a continuing analytic product that is not there to shock or awe the president or even necessarily to warn him of short or medium term uh, dire events. Instead, it's purely informational and analytical. Where the analytic line might be erroneous over time, that can have implications for the relationship. But for the most part, that's not how it functions. And much of what comes out of the PDB of value is more through the briefings and the interactions with the president and his inner circle of policymakers. Uh, that's been increasingly the case. The presidents and the policymakers value the PDB, uh, not so much because of the product itself, but because of the briefing and the information dialogue, intelligence dialogue that occurs uh, as a result of it. Now, uh, the word briefing. So that, that's an ongoing interaction uh, between the, the President of the United States, the Oval Office, and the intelligence community through the senior intelligence officials. 
through the PDB. Is there any indication like throughout history that uh, this on this close interaction shapes sort of like the tone for um, uh, intelligence collection or did it, did it somehow uh, guided the intelligence cycle um, based on uh, the president's demands? Uh, yeah, the question of what gets in the PDB is, is complicated because it's partly driven simply by exogenous events. Things happen. The people who plan the PDB decide that these are important for the president to know, and they always try to cast the stories in the fashion of, Mr. President, you need to know this because uh, one of the things that presidents always want in the PDB is what we call value added. They don't want a summary of information that they've probably already heard of from the newspapers or from the situation room or some other source. They want to know what its implications are and what its impact uh, is on the policies that the president is carrying out. And in particular, they like the PDB, if not in the articles in the briefings to discuss actionability. What does this give me the opportunity to do or what opportunities is it limiting? And how should I respond? How can I respond? We're not in the business of prescribing policy, although some presidents do insist that we offer that. We can hardly refuse it when you're asked point blank, what do you think I should do? But more often the value comes from evaluating one, the probabilities of reactions to certain actions you take. Mr. President, if you do X, a, B, and C are likely to happen in that descending order of probability, and here are the implications of A, B, and C. That's the sort of value added that the presidents uh, really appreciate. Uh, turning the process around, however, in the briefings, it will be very clear what items are of interest to the president and his policy advisors and what aren't. And that will cue the PDB planning process because after all, you want the president and his inner circle to read the book and appreciate it. And if you fill it with a lot of stories about issues and countries and topics they're not interested in that aren't on their agenda, they'll tune you out in effect. So you do have an important feedback mechanism here and that will drive the planning of the book. And sometimes that requires, if we don't have information about a subject to drive collection. And then we will respond to those requests either directly in the PDB itself or through special memos or other kinds of art forms that are provided either to the president or to the requesting official. Uh, some policymakers have questioned whether that is a good thing because it winds up having the PDB become a policy servicing vehicle rather than an informational information and analytics source. Um, that's not politicization, that's simply responding to what the policymakers want. But even um, our current director, uh, William Burns has commented back when he was within the State Department that sometimes he thought the disconnect between or the connection between intelligence and policy should be a little more pronounced rather than having the policies driving what's in the book, simply the book should be informing the policies that already exist. It's a tough trade-off. You have to balance your objectivity and your distance from the policy process with the very fact that you are informing the policy process and people who don't get what they want out of your product and briefings 
are not going to think it's important and they'll get their information elsewhere. Has there ever been any risk of politicization? I know you, 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 you mentioned that it has nothing to do with politicization, but has there ever been any, um, any administration throughout, uh, you know, since the inception of the PDB, uh, where, there, where there's any uh, risk or close enough to politicize the, the, the whole report? I would only say that from the standpoint that certain presidents uh, have had certain viewpoints about the CIA, whether it's a uh, too liberal kind of organization. Richard Nixon, for example, one reason why he was distant from the agency was he thought it was uh, overstocked with uh, liberals and detentniks, and which is ironic considering what happened later in his administration, but nonetheless, people who were, as the term went back then, soft on communism, uh, too interested in conciliation with the Soviet Union. He also blamed the agency for causing him to lose the 1960 election by leaking information to John Kennedy, which didn't happen. So he came in with a bit of a grudge against CIA, and it was very tough to make any sort of connection with him because he, in many ways, didn't trust what was in the PDB. We know full well now that he was rarely reading the PDB itself. He did receive it every day, but his principal vehicle for intelligence information came through Henry Kissinger. Kissinger had his national security staff every day prepare a briefing memo that was a synthesis of all sorts of intelligence reporting and foreign policy insights from various departments that came through the sit room and the national security staff. This memo was then what Kissinger would take to the Oval Office and discuss with the president. The PDB is not part of that process. Now, in a sense, this was good because it put a degree of separation between the PDB and the president, which you might think isn't good, but if the president distrusts what's in the PDB, maybe it was a good idea in this administration just to have that bit of distance and to have Kissinger serving as a gatekeeper and a, and a bit of a filter. Now, Kissinger himself, liked the CIA and he thought its analysis was pretty good. He did make some pointed comments about it that we took on board and tried to improve what we were doing. Uh, but in, in this case, it was a, a tough sale uh, for Nixon. We knew, for example, and this is a, a harbinger of the relationship, that when he was in his uh, transition headquarters up in New York City before taking office, he was receiving all of the agency's daily products. Uh, they went to him, they went to Kissinger and to some other people. The set of the PDBs that we sent to President Nixon, President-elect Nixon, came back to us after the inauguration uh, inside their, their still sealed envelopes. Nixon had never opened any of those that we had given him. Uh, instead, it all went through Kissinger. And they, the relationship did not improve uh, over time, even though we tried to recast the product physically to have more appeal to what he was uh, interested in or to his working style. I can only imagine uh, the amount of information uh, that is turned into intelligence by the intelligence community. Uh, but how are the topics picked? I mean, I, I can only imagine covering the whole world, many important events around the world. How, uh, I can imagine it, it, it's a monumental task to choose specific topics that will end up in, in, in that one pager, mm -hmm. let's say. Well, what's the process? It must be extremely difficult for an analyst or the group of analysts to put this together on the daily basis. Right. 
it's interesting to when you track the history of the president's product how that process of production has changed over time uh, back for many years and i would say from my own experience uh, i would date it probably to the late 1980s and then beyond where the building the in effect is spun up 24 hours a day trying to service the president and the policy community where you have people working round the clock you have these multiple briefings for customers you have people showing up at uh, in the you know, wee hours of the morning to prepare for morning briefings then they come back and get debriefed and then the planning occurs and this whole cycle goes on 24 hours a day uh, i was just this morning briefing a group of people who are, we call them presidential support assistants. They're not the briefers, they're not the analysts, but they are involved in actually producing the PDB. And they work around, the, they work overnight to put the product out in the early morning. Uh, needless to say, when I got there at 8 a.m., they were pretty darn tired, and I'm, I'm glad I was able to keep them awake from my presentation. Uh, but that, that kind of freneticism is only relatively recent, if we go back to roughly the late 80s. Before then, it's kind of remarkable that the whole production of the president's product was almost lackadaisical. Uh, it was very low key. People worked normal hours. Uh, you could sign off at the end of the day at 5 or 6 p.m. and say the book is done, ready for delivery the next morning. And if anything crucial happened overnight, some addendum could be added to it. Uh, and that was it. Uh, you didn't have uh, concerns about uh, you know, round-the-clock uh, additions and things. Uh, what went into it was basically what came off the ticker tape or came through some intelligence reporting channels. And then you would add analysis to it, and that would be the book. Uh, sometimes the content is driven, as I mentioned earlier, by taskings from the policy community. They want more detail about something or they will say, I, I want to know more about this subject and you haven't been covering it lately, or you're, I want a different angle on it. You're emphasizing one aspect of this country's policies, but I wanna know more about the leadership, or I think their economic policy is more important than their military policy, whatever. So it's a combination of responding to what in effect comes in over the transom through the intelligence channels and what the policymakers are wanting to see in the book. And then you have a very elaborate planning process throughout the day in which the briefers come back, they give feedback from their briefings. So-and-so wants to know about this, somebody took issue with this analysis, we need to think more about it and such. And that will be factored into uh, a later PDB, either with articles that deal with those issues of interest or specialized memos, as I said, that address a particular topic that the policymakers are uh, interested in that wasn't necessarily in the book or wasn't covered adequately. It is extremely interesting uh, what you just said about the, you know, the process and the fact that you have uh, a team or teams working overnight to produce this thing. Um, I, uh, I practice intelligence in the private sector and I found this interesting because we have Look, it's not a presidential daily brief, of course, but we do have a, a daily brief uh, where we have to monitor the whole world and mm -hmm. put the most relevant things uh, 
are relevant to, to the company, to wherever we have business. Uh, and we have to do it overnight. So whoever is in charge of the overnight shift is mm -hmm. the person that uh, that needs to do it. And that gets disseminated early in the morning, goes all the way to chief security officer and all the management, mm -hmm. uh, obviously. Very small, uh, a smaller uh, uh, focus, but uh, uh, it was very interesting. But uh, what about when um, the material uh, or the, the estimates are wrong within the PDB? Of course, working in intelligence, we work with uncertainty. Nothing is 100% sure. Uh, what are the implications for the world after something has been briefed to the president? Uh, in the past, and the estimates have been wrong, and also uh, to the group of analysts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, the the PDB is only one source of information for the president, and that's something that uh, we need to take into account when we're talking about the implications of what we say. Just because it's in the PDB doesn't mean the president will necessarily agree with it, and it doesn't even necessarily mean that it's correct. Uh, we might have information that comes from sources who think they know more or claim they know more than they really do. That makes it into the PDB and then that can cause some issues if uh, we base our analysis on that erroneous or misleading uh, information. If we are caught out practicing uh, poor tradecraft, then that can certainly have implications because it uh, undercuts our reputation. Uh, certain presidents have been quite willing to call us on the carpet when we have indicated in a piece we've written that uh, we think we know more than we really do, that our assumptions are based on uh, shoddy evidence or very thin evidence, that we're contradicting ourselves from something we had written uh, relatively recently without explaining why the change in bottom line. Uh, George W. Bush was great on that. He was he had a trapdoor memory uh, and he would um, mention to you that, well, that's not what you said two months ago. And sometimes the analysts wouldn't remember what they had written two months ago and would be caught in a somewhat embarrassing situation. Um, as I said, the, the presidents are very keen on knowing what in the PDB advances the story. And sometimes that can get you in the realm of speculation. And one thing we don't like to ever do is uh, speculate without sound evidence. And we certainly don't want to get into the prediction business. Uh, some people think that that's what we do when we uh, analyze, when we forecast. What we're simply doing is projecting a bit into the future uh, and explaining what some likely outcomes might be. But we're not saying that a will necessarily follow B. If you do that, you tend to overreach and that undercuts your credibility. So you have to be generally very, very cautious about doing that. And you, you can explain that in the course of your briefings, uh, levels of uncertainty. What we don't know is often as important to convey as what we do know. And certain policymakers have been very keen on having us inform them of our intelligence gaps. And then, of course, they will ask, well, what are you doing to fill that gap? And then we will explain what we're trying to do in the collection area or whatever to uh, answer that question. You never want to say, uh, we don't have any evidence of X because the policymaker will rightly ask, are you even looking for evidence of X? Don't tell me that you just don't know anything. 
try to go find it out, and then tell me you what you do know and what you don't know. So that levels of uncertainty are very important to convey, and that lends credibility to our analysis if we are humble and admit that we uh, don't know everything that's going on in the world. How stressful is it to be a, a briefer? I've never done it, but I have spoken to many people who have, and though they regard it as probably the high points of their careers, it will also be one of the most stressful jobs that they have ever had. It's physically demanding for one thing because you work extremely long hours and you're working off schedule. Uh, a typical briefer will come into the agency in the early morning hours, one, two o'clock, to read in on all of the developments that have occurred in the previous day, to read feedback notes from meetings, to discuss incoming traffic, to interact with, uh, if necessary, some analysts who might still be uh, involved with the story. And then they have to prepare their briefing packages for their individual consumer. This was one of the things that changed a lot uh, in the course of the history of the PDB. The PDB used to just be exactly that, the PDB. It was a product that you was produced and you took it downtown and you briefed it in the Oval Office if you were doing briefings or with your policymaker. And you would necessarily grab a handful of things that had come in overnight, just random bits of traffic or some update or something, or maybe a memo that somebody had written. And you would take that to your customer and that would be it. But still the focus was very much on the PDB as a standalone product. Now that's changed a lot. Uh, over time, especially in the uh, uh, second Bush administration, you now have, at first, the name has been changed. It's not just the president's daily brief, i.e. focusing on that particular product, but it's called the president's daily briefing. And the idea here was that the briefing is what is important. The PDB as a product drives, informs the briefing, but there's so much more to it. And physically, you now have individual president's daily briefing books prepared for these various customers. They're in three ring binders with a gold embossed a seal and the name of the customer on the cover, very personalized. But the whole point is you can adapt what is in the so-called PDB simply by opening up the notebook and adding things or tearing things out if you decide, uh, or the DNI decides or the DCIA decides that this piece really doesn't stand up. So you can constantly modify it and personalize it. And that goes to the, one of the other points that throughout the history of the PDB after the briefing started in 1974, is that the briefing itself is almost more important than the product because that's where you can add the value the policymakers want. You can elaborate on what's in the book. You can add your own expertise, or if you happen to be doing one of the uh, walk-ons or the deep dives, as they're called, other briefers can come in and provide their expertise beyond what you know. So that's one of the big changes uh, that has occurred. Now, getting back to your point about the, the stressfulness, um, when you have your briefing, whatever the hours of the day are, the military does them earlier, of course, 
And the time of day for the president's briefing is varied uh, over time, but it's generally relatively early in the morning, eight, nine o'clock. Some have had it later, some uh, prefer it uh, at, at other times. But that's not the end of the day because on occasion, uh, some of the briefers hang around for policy discussions with the, the deputies committee or the principals committee, and they're there to inform that. Then they have to come back to headquarters, provide their feedback, uh, get ready for the next day. Maybe they finally get home in the late afternoon, and then they try to have a little bit of family time and some rest and maybe get some exercise. And then they're back up, bouncing around at midnight and starting all over again. And now the presidents want briefers when they travel, which adds that strain to things, which is why we uh, platoon the briefers. We usually have a couple of them doing it, uh, but even then it's very, very stressful. And that's why they only last on the job by design for roughly a year or so. And then they're rotated out and another group of people uh, take over. Um, now, this product has very limited dissemination. Uh, and with a uh, with few cases in mind, for example, being Latin determined to strike in US, which was released uh, to the public. Um, are there any other examples where uh, this product has been disseminated outside of the usual circle? Mm -hmm. um, not as a routine case. Uh, we have started a program uh, dating back uh, several years of declassifying all of the presidential products starting with Truman and we've worked our way up through Gerald Ford. You can find these out, out online on the CIA public website. Beyond that, uh, any declassification of the PDB has been purely of a random nature or a uh, indeterminate nature based on a particular request or requirement, uh, such as the, the Bin Laden report being declassified. Uh, scholars have been trying to get their hands on the PDB for many years, they've used a variety of uh, avenues to do it, FOIA requests and, and things of that sort. But because of its sensitivity, uh, it's, those rarely come to pass. Um, I had mentioned earlier the trade-off between sensitivity and circulation and the ways in which different presidents tried to control it. Um, what you generally find is that a president will come in and find that the PDB is too broadly circulated under the previous administration and they tighten up. And then inevitably it starts to laxen a bit because more people want to get it, more people need to get it. And you can control this in various ways. You can create different levels of PDBs, some with very sensitive uh, operational information that will go to a small handful of customers then you can have an expanded PDB that doesn't have that material in it, and that can go to a larger set of people. And then certain members of the policy community will only get PDB items that pertain to their particular areas of interest, say it's homeland security or uh, terrorism or something like that. Uh, they won't get the full PDB because they don't need it. And if they get briefings, those would be tailored uh, accordingly. Uh, at its tightest, as I mentioned, the PDB went to only five people. At its broadest, it's gone to uh, three or four dozen. And uh, the, the trade-off there is, to some degree, the sensitivity and the uh, actionability of certain of that kind of information.
we have seen uh, initiatives to try to declassify the PDBs. I believe it was uh, uh, in the in, in the 2000s, in the early 2000s. Uh, do you think it will be the case to be able to declassify all the historical PDBs? And um, what would that mean for national security, even though they, you know, it's been a long time since they were issued? Mm -hmm. Well, as I said, declassification of the Carter PDBs is currently underway. And I believe as we move further ahead in time with the 25 year rule that's roughly in place that we'll gradually see more and more of them uh, coming out. Um, they are all carefully reviewed for security issues. And you'll find even in some of the early ones that we've released from back in the early 1960s that some redactions have occurred because of references to sources or methods that uh, necessarily have to be expunged from those. What I would hope that the declassifications of the PDBs do over time is inform uh, scholars and journalists about what information was made available to presidents at certain decision points, what they knew before they made those decisions. Um, I'm not seeing much in the scholarly literature that people are using these declassified PDBs for that. Maybe they're still writing books or dissertations about it that we just haven't seen. But as far as the journal literature, um, it's pretty sparse. Uh, just a handful of items have come out that are directly using uh, PDB or pickle or whatever the time frame uh, related information. I think that's in part because not enough people know about it. But secondly, they don't know yet how to incorporate it into their analyses and assessments and historical writing on those uh, particular subjects. Uh, the use of intelligence in general by diplomatic and foreign policy historians is really not the most sophisticated. They tend to have somewhat uh, stereotype views about what intelligence is or isn't. And uh, I'm hoping that at least with the presidential products, plus all of the other things that we've declassified over the years, estimates, intelligence, uh, papers, various things like that, that more of that will get used uh, to get a, a fuller appreciation of the role of intelligence in various foreign policy scenarios. Could you briefly give us a glimpse into the transition? How, how does the PDB come into play when there is a transition from one administration to the mm -hmm. next? That's a very important point because the transitions are crucial in enabling the agency to establish a positive relationship with the incoming administration. The first transition briefings occurred back in 1952 because President Truman wanted the incoming President Eisenhower to know a lot more about the world than he did when he suddenly became president upon Franklin Roosevelt's death. He was very ignorant uh, of a lot of things going on in foreign policy, partly because that wasn't his background and partly because Franklin Roosevelt didn't include him in those kinds of discussions. So to his credit, uh, Truman thought this was something we should try to avoid. And ever since, uh, and we've all documented this in a unclassified book by a former senior officer named John Helgerson, it's called Getting to Know the President. You can find it out on the public website, you can buy it through GPO, and you can even download an audio book uh, of it. Uh, as far as I know, it's the only US government audio book that's ever been made. And it's a fascinating story because it shows how important that relationship building has been 
and how the process has developed over time. The general script goes as follows. Uh, we provide no intelligence briefings until the parties select their candidates. And then during that period of time between the conventions and the election, they will receive, depending on their interests and demands, generalized intelligence briefings that are not dealing with any kind of specific sensitive operational information because they don't need to know it. And then after the election, the president-elect will continue to receive the same kinds of briefings using the same PDB that the incumbent is receiving. We don't create a separate president's-elect PDB, and then we have the other book for the incumbent, albeit short-termer. Uh, it's the same PDB at that point. The PDB is not used during the candidates' briefings. That's material that the analysts put forth and it's vetted and, and so forth. The PDB itself then comes into play during the president-elect briefings. And that's where he also will get a specialized briefing on covert action and other sensitive operational uh, information. The question of who else receives that briefing depends on who the uh, agency decides to clear or now the DNI decides to clear for those briefings. But generally it's uh, a fairly tight group of senior foreign policy people, most of whom will, you will see in the administration once it uh, takes power. And these are efforts to provide a deeper dive into particular areas. Uh, the number of them varies depending on the president's schedules. Uh, we've had generally a lot of success in uh, making that transitional process work. Uh, it's very, very important for uh, creating that relation building. Has there been any peculiar requests by any president throughout the history of the PDB? I'd say probably the, the most unusual one came from uh, George H.W. Bush, who, as you know, was the only president who previously had been uh, head of CIA. He was very fond of the agency, greatly appreciated the briefings. They were the first thing he did uh, on his work day. He made sure that that was the, the preeminent uh, event of, or the, of, of the start of the day. But he also noticed, and this is part of the business of intelligence, is generally telling uh, policymakers a lot of things they would rather not hear because the world is often an unpleasant place. And at a point, President Bush said, do you have, can you lighten it up a little bit? Uh, it can't all be gloom and doom. And so we took it upon ourselves to create an interesting little feature that carried over into the early Clinton administration in which we would pull out of our various uh, accumulation of traffic, little oddball stories that were quirky in and of themselves, but they also gave an insight into something that was going on in the particular country we were talking about or the issue we were talking about. These became referred to as the sign of the times. And I can't recount to you any specific ones. They're not you know, laugh out loud humorous, but uh, they, they bespeak a little bit of insight into something that is offbeat in and of itself, but also suggests something underlying going on in a country's politics or society or economics. And Bush definitely appreciated it. And he gave a shout out to uh, the people who prepared them by calling them the Office of Comic Relief. 
at some point that feature disappeared from the PDB. And um, but I remember writing some of them myself when I was uh, an analyst back in the early 90s. Uh, and they were kind of fun. <laughs> Dr. Robard, thank you very much for taking the time today to discuss with me the President's Daily Brief. I truly appreciate it. Yeah, thanks very much, Efren. It's been a pleasure. And well, that was a remarkably interesting and insightful conversation with Dr. David Robarge on the PDB. To the audience, thank you very much for tuning in. I'm your host, Efren Torres. We'll speak next time.